Thank you. morning. What a beautiful day, right? It's good to see everybody today. Thank you for coming out. The more I study this Sermon on the Mount, the more I see how opposite Jesus' thinking is to our world. As one of my professors used to say, Everything we think, the opposite is true. You will not see this kind of teaching found anywhere except in the scriptures. And we must have a heart transformed uh, to even have a chance at living out a smidgen of this. Both our initial transformation by rebirth, we need to be born again. But also this ongoing transformation and sanctification where God is constantly changing us and directing our, and, and, and transforming our minds and our hearts and our thoughts towards what God wants for us. We must be continually focused on our master if we are going to follow his way. We have said it a thousand times, but it's worth repeating. An abiding relationship with Christ is the only way to produce this kind of out of this world fruit. In order to live this out, we must have a day to day, hour by hour, abiding, enjoying relationship with God. You will not produce this fruit without it. The world will never tell us to take the loss unless it's trying to manipulate us to get something from us. And then it'll tell us to take the loss. But Jesus calls his disciples to love like he loved in order to show the world where hope is found. Being the salt and light of the world will cost us everything, but it will give hope to a dying world. That's what we see in these passages over and over and over. We find that to die to self is to show off the glory of the one who died for us. You're going to see this today as we continue along in this passage. I am so encouraged, but at the same time convicted as we go through this. This section is Jesus' explanation of the law. He's given an exposition of the first five books of the Bible. He's teaching the disciples a correct view of the law. This is the king's explanation of his law to his subjects in light of the coming kingdom. But remember, we saw that Jesus was teaching his disciples how they should live in the lost world in light of the coming kingdom. In other words, none of these things would really matter. Uh, uh, you've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but don't despise or, uh, uh, or, or go against an evil person or resist an evil person if there wasn't evil in the world. This is not the kingdom, <laughs> Do you understand? We are living in light of the kingdom to come. But presently, we live in a very lost world, don't we? And Jesus is giving us direct explanation of how we live in a world filled with evil and wickedness and pain. So, we are his subjects wanting to hear what he wants us to do. He used these antithetical statements in this section to show how everything should be flipped upside down from the religious teaching of the elites of his day. All that Jesus taught was antithetical. It opposed that works righteousness way of thinking the scribes and the Pharisees used to promote. Here Jesus was giving direct contradictions to man-made oral traditions of the Jews. Several times he says, you've heard it said, but I myself say to you. These six antithetical statements that flip the world out upside down have been revealed. And we're looking through. First we saw in verses 21 to 26, a thorough commitment to mortifying our murderous hearts is required. We must be willing to kill sin in our hearts. 
We must be willing uh, to understand that our hearts are continually straying and continually elevating ourselves and that we must die daily to our fleshly thoughts to defend ourselves and to uplift ourselves and to be all about us. There must be a thorough commitment to kill our murderous hearts by the spirit that works within us. Then we saw a radical commitment to our purity that we must have, no matter what, we must be totally committed to purity in our hearts. And that radical steps may be needed to be taken, taken in order to avoid the lust of our hearts. He says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, implying what? Take radical steps to do whatever is necessary to avoid allowing lust to form in our hearts and then to execute this and to think on these evil, wicked things. Third, we saw a sacrificial commitment to our spouse is necessary and required. Marriage was not upheld by the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They found every loophole they could come up with to divorce their spouses. Much like our day, marriage was under attack. Jesus called, however, for a high view of marriage. And we need that high view of marriage too, don't we? We need to take it seriously that we have committed to a spouse and therefore we are sacrificially committed to them till death do us part. We made those vows, didn't we? We made those commitments, didn't we? And when we said, I do, we are saying, before God, I will fulfill this. I will love this person. We all need to remember That Christ calls marriage and sets it as a very high bar and a standard. That it's a reflection of Christ's love for the church. And so we should love our spouses sacrificially. We all need to remember all of these antithetical statements. Are not meant to be a total explanation of each subject, by the way. We're not getting a full discourse from Jesus on marriage and divorce. He's not giving every little detail. But Jesus fills those in. In the rest of Scripture, if you want to know what the Word of God says about marriage and divorce, there's plenty of material to study. You'll get it, right? But this sermon was meant to flip over the spiritual worldview of the Jewish people. He, he was calling them to look again at your hearts and examine how you think about these things because they're backwards. You need to understand that the law says this and you've twisted it to allow for loopholes so you can do whatever you want to do. And everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, like the end of Judges. But they did it under the guise of being self-righteous and used the law to be that way. This sermon, however, Jesus is contradicting all that the religious Pharisees and scribes had done to the law. He was confronting their fake, self-righteous religious system. That had corrupted the law. We must remember this as we seek to apply these truths. If if we aren't careful, we will apply these concepts incorrectly ourselves. So today's statements are especially important to be cautious with. We're going to talk about some very difficult subjects as we go through the next couple. And you're going to have to be careful to not make it say more than what it does say. And remember what Jesus is getting at, the main concepts. So let's move on to the fourth correction of of the Jews' wrong explanation of the law. The fourth antithetical statement. An absolute commitment to our integrity. An absolute commitment to our integrity. Jesus calls his disciples to be trustworthy. That's basically what he's talking about here. Let's read again, verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, For it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head. For you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes. Or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. 
Without a correct understanding of what Jesus was confronting here, we will miss the main point. And like the previous section, cut off our hand. That's not what he's implying here, right? There's a reason that he brings this up. Jesus was not forbidding all vows exclusively. If so, that would mean what? Whatever you do when you go to court, don't put your hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Or don't make vows in your marriage. Because if you do, you might break those vows. Is that what he was getting at? No, the answer is an absolute no. That's not his point. Again, context is crucial. He just transitioned from a section emphasizing following through on one's marriage vows. How could he then tell them not to follow through on a vow or or make a vow to your spouse? Marriage was started with vows in Jesus' days, and it started with vows today, right? Made before God. When we make a commitment to our spouse, we're ultimately saying, by God's grace, we will keep our commitment to our wives. This was common in Hebrew marriages just like ours. Also, the Old Testament had mentioned through numerous times this idea of oaths and vows and making commitments before the Lord. For example, in Numbers 30, verse 2, it states this, If a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Well, if Moses says this and God gave him the law, then obviously to do these things wouldn't have been sin to do it. Correct? The vows in and of themselves were not the problem that Jesus was confronting. The problem was the twisted religious hearts that distorted the laws concerning vows into opportunities to manipulate people. I want you to listen closely. The Pharisees had turned vows into a way of lying to people or manipulating people. They would twist it just a little bit in the statement, I vow by Jerusalem or to Jerusalem. If you weren't listening real closely, it could mean I'm lying to you or I'm telling you the truth. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But that is our hearts, isn't it, beloved? We do everything we can to deceive people. That's what we do. The real tradition again says, Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. The law was meant to promote truthfulness. That's what he's getting at back in Numbers. But the religious elites had twisted the law into an opportunity to manipulate people with justified laws. The Mishnah, that is the written Jewish tradition, gave a twisted system for oaths. It gave man-made rules for when oaths must be kept and when they were not binding. For example, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound. But if you swear towards Jerusalem, then you are bound. So the religious ones had a huge distorted system of making oaths that allowed for lying. Instead of ensuring integrity, they had taken the law and made it and twisted it so that they could actually give ways to manipulate people and lie. The very thing that God had established the law to avoid, they were now doing. It reminds me of when I was a child. Any of y'all do this before? The fingers crossed concept. I remember. Maybe y'all have heard of it. I had to look it up to make sure online is it still around. And it was. If you made a promise but had your fingers crossed behind your back or somewhere. It became legs crossed in some cases. Then it was anything crossed, right? then it wasn't a binding promise. You could say something, I'll do that, and have your fingers crossed, and it meant that what? You had a loophole, because it really didn't mean what you were really saying. What is that? That's called lying. Really? Yes, 
lying. It's tried to, trying to get around things and make it so that you could lie and get away with it. That's our hearts, beloved. Our kids do that. Hopefully we don't do that anymore, right? Now, we might not use this foolish child's antic when we get older. But, beloved, you still have that propensity in your heart. That propensity is still there. We look for ways to stretch the truth, don't we? I mean, if we're really honest, if you're all praying, the Lord will convict you of these moments. Where you fabricate something, or blow something up, or make it what it really isn't in order to what? Manipulate somebody, when you might not be telling the full truth. We look for ways to tell half-truths, so we can manipulate people into what we want them to do. The Jews of Jesus' day had come up with this elaborate way to excuse lying. And Jesus confronts this wrong thinking. He says, in effect... Everything you swear by is under God's authority. God sees it. God has made it. God is king over it. So therefore, any oath that you make by anything is ultimately God's. And so be wary that you are making a promise before the Lord, who is sovereign over all. All oaths are binding under His authority. So don't make a promise unless you are completely committed to following through. Don't use wicked loopholes to allow for lying. Keep your word. Friends, integrity is not optional. For the followers of Christ, we must allow our yes to be yes and our no to be no. We live in a time when integrity is a rarity, isn't it? Lying is acceptable by most of the world. People will often look you right in the eye and lie directly to your face, won't they? I don't know about you, but buying anything from anybody is a very scary proposition, isn't it? You don't know whether or not they're telling you the truth ever, do you? Because ultimately, it's all about the bottom line. And they will tell you whatever they need to in order to sell the product. We need to be careful, though, beloved, that we don't fall into this same trap. Lying is acceptable to the world, but it is not for Christ's disciples. Today, people use lying to... Tools to muddy the water, too. This is a new one that drives me crazy. Where they they literally throw out lies just to make things look a little fuzzy. So I can't really tell what is the truth. In a postmodern world that is constantly uh, debating whether there is truth, to tell lies really means nothing to our world, does it? But we, however, must be light in this world. We must be different. We must be people of integrity. How do you speak the truth always? Back to my original point. Abide in Christ. See, as the Spirit of God works in your heart and you're focused on the way, the truth, and the life, then you know what is truth and you only speak what is truth. When you're not abiding with Christ, you will be a liar. Now, I know we all make mistakes. We forget things. But we should... Own our sins when we make a mistake and turn to Christ again. But Jesus is speaking here, however, of intentional manipulation, intentional lying, using the vowel system in order to manipulate people and get them to do what we want. But he exhorts them let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Friends, we must tell the truth. We must keep our word. We must repent when we lie and turn to the one who never lied. Oh, aren't you thankful? I'm thankful that we have a Savior that never lied. We have one that never manipulated a single person. He always told the truth. And all of the righteous truth that he told 
is credited to every believer in the room. And we all, what? Worship him now for that, don't we? What a good God. We serve a Savior that always told the truth. He never deceptively exaggerated to manipulate people, unlike us. He never committed any, to, committed to anything and didn't follow through. Aren't you thankful that the numerous times he said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die, he did what? He went to Jerusalem and he died. His word was truth. He always told the truth and he never lied. Not even a white lie. Oh, friends, listen to me. Lies are ultimately rooted in this desire for people to like us or to approve us. Often, again, pride is creeping there. We don't tell the full truth because we think if we tell the full truth, somebody's not going to like us. Or we want somebody to do something, and we're thinking of what they're doing, and we're thinking, if I'll just tell them this, even though it might not be the full truth, they'll go ahead and do it. These are all sins, an abomination before the Lord, and this is the propensity of our hearts. Everyone in the room has this propensity. You understand that. We need Christ, don't we? Give us Christ. Spirit, work in our hearts that we will not lie and deceive people. And it requires His followers to maintain our integrity by His grace at work in us. So let's turn to the next exposition of the law. Jesus called for a humble commitment to avoid revenge. A humble commitment to avoid revenge. Now this one is deep. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Wow. Is this not totally opposite of anything you would hear in our world? Jesus turns now to the topic of revenge. The law had established rules for justice in their day. In Exodus 21, Moses had explained the rules for justice were to be fair. It's important we make a few important caveats here. First, the law was especially for a theocracy. What's a theocracy? A theocracy is a a nation that had as its king or its head, God. And as much as we say one nation under God, and we do say that, the reality is is that we're not a theocracy here in America. We live in a country that is rebellious towards God as a whole. We're not under God's in our heart (laughs) and not under the true God by most standards. But this was speaking, and the law was speaking directly to Israel. That wasn't a theocracy. The focus of the law of Moses was a judicial setting for Israel. To tell them, okay, if you have to judge a person and how to deal with people when they're bickering and fighting with each other, these are the rules on how you deal with it. This is the just system. It was meant to help avoid feuds between the tribes. From growing. What happened with Jacob and his bro- or Jacob's sons, Joseph and his brothers? What did they do? Come on. They sold, right, and they fought, didn't they? They were basically jealous of one another. There was always this. Well, do you understand that once they came out of Egypt, they were uh, tribes of people that were constantly jealous and fighting and bickering, right? So God establishes these laws to help control and protect and and give a just system so that these tribes wouldn't constantly be bickering and fighting. It was meant to help avoid feuds between the tribes. 
that were growing. The heart is evil and the law was given to keep the evil from escalating into wars between tribes. If one person hit someone and hurt them, the law was given to exact a just penalty. What happens, by the way, if you don't have a, a, a just setup with that? If somebody hits somebody, what does the next person do? They hit them harder. <laughs> it, it escalates. Do you understand? If you kill my cousin, what's, their, what's the other family going to do? They're going to take your cousin and your mother. Because it's all about who can get one up, right? So the law needed to be just. It said only an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Make it fair, make it right, make it just. As Carson states, the law was not designed to be discharged by individuals swept up in personal vendettas, but by the judiciary. In other words... We weren't, they weren't supposed to take the law and say, oh, you punch me, here I go, boom, punch you back. That wasn't the point of it. it. The point of it was, when you're making a judgment between two people fighting, the judge is supposed to say, look, you lost an eye. This guy needs to lose an eye too, to make it just. It was an outside looking in. Do you understand? Whereas the law for the Jews had become what? Oh, Law says, I, you punch me, <laughs> I can get you. You did something bad to me, I can get revenge. They had twisted the law again to give an excuse for their, only, their own personal anger and vendettas and their bitterness. And they sought retribution on their own. They were a bitter, spiteful people, much like our culture and our society. If you call me a name, what am I going to do? Call you a name that's worse. That's how the human heart is. But Jesus called his disciples to be totally different from the world. Flipping everything upside down again. When somebody calls you a name, what do you do? Don't call them a name in return. When somebody punches you, what do you do? Don't punch them back. Jesus was calling his disciples to radical changes. He exhorted the disciples to turn the other cheek. As all of us, uh, there's probably 10 to 20 of us with guns in our pockets, right? So all these questions start coming to our mind. What do we do with all this stuff? Again, Jesus is not giving a full discourse on how to defend yourself or whether to defend yourself. He's talking about a principle of the heart. Listen closely, please listen. It's about our hearts. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But in our hearts, often we think vengeance is mine. Again, turn the other cheek is unpopular in our day. We're considered weak and foolish if we turn the other cheek. But Jesus' disciples are called to this. Everywhere we look in our world, we're told, get revenge, get even, hit back harder, and destroy your opponent at all costs. Isn't this what we're taught? I know where I grew up. I knew in the area I grew up, the one that punches, you better punch back harder. Because if they get up, you might get beat up more. Beloved, Jesus is specifically confronting this kind of mentality of revenge seekers. Now, there's three obvious questions that arise as we delve into this issue in this passage. What about law enforcement and armies? Does this mean, okay, anybody that came to Christ and was a disciple, they couldn't use a gun anymore. Was this a call for passive, passivism? In, in other words, not fighting ever. I don't believe Jesus is talking about this. I, I believe, I'm convinced that he's talking about the principle of the heart. I can tell you that you can have a police officer, listen to me closely, that can be vindictive 
and bitter. And they can do something wrong. But you can also have a police officer that has a right heart. That is looking to the Lord and has a good conscience. And is doing it as a service to the Lord. We have to be careful. I don't think he's applying this to these, those things. Enforcement and armies. Romans 13 makes it very clear that God establishes government and the authorities in order to put down evil. It's very clear. What about self-defense? Mike, what about self-defense? Am I ever allowed to defend myself and my family? Well, I don't think Jesus is talking about self-defense here either. He's talking about the bitter, spiteful, revenge-filled hearts that we have. The ones that are looking for any excuse to punch somebody in the face or to say something wrong. Does this mean that we should give everything we own to the poor? Is that what he's saying? Because after all, that would mean what? Every single believer should be dead broke. Is that what he means? No, but I will tell you this. I think the tension that he lays down in these passages needs to sit on our hearts a little bit. Everybody in the room needs to allow this to just... And evaluate your heart. Am I bitter? Am I vengeful? Am I prideful? Do I hold on to my possession so much that if somebody asks me for something, there is no way... I'm giving it to that good for nothing. What did that just do? It went back to the other thing. See how it all fits together, beloved? What's going on in our hearts? If you're always looking to return revile for revile, maybe there's a problem in your heart. Jesus is calling us to evaluate our hearts. We must be light in this world. I don't believe Jesus is addressing the governing authorities and things like this on the Sermon on the Mount. He was addressing how the religious system had allowed for personal vendettas and getting revenge in thought and deed. So I don't believe it applies to that, the the governing authorities. And second, I don't believe Jesus is saying that it's it's never permissible to defend ourselves or our family from evil. However... I do believe he would say we should never hunt down those who have hurt us. We should allow the government to do those jobs, whether they do it or not. It's not our job to go hunt down somebody that did something wrong. How many of you know that these kind of issues, these kind of issues are not taught in the world and in the entertainment that we are shown? They're not, are they? I want you to think about what has happened over the last 10, I don't know about you, but 10, 20, 30 years in entertainment. What's happened with entertainment is is that if somebody is getting revenge, they become the hero of the story. I Confession. Saw something happen this week where somebody in in a TV show got revenge for something that had happened to him or to, to his spouse, and got so angry and, and finally shot the person and lied in order to shoot the person. And by the end, you were rejoicing. I'm glad she did that. Sure, I'm glad that person got revenge. What happened? My soul, I'm sitting here studying this thing. Wait. It's the opposite. Everything the world teaches us, it goes against what we're thinking here. Friends, listen to me. We need to be quick to give grace and forgive and show mercy. That's what Jesus is saying here. Quick to let love cover a multitude of sins. Boy, Do we need this in our house? How about you? Third, I don't believe Jesus is exhorting the disciples to take a vow of poverty and give everything away indiscriminately. We must use wisdom in how we deal with what God has given us. We should 
We should give based on need. Real need, not want. Very important. And what will help a person best, right? These make sense, doesn't it? All of this is still in the heart of giving. A heart of giving. Jesus was correcting that false religious system that considered the poor as under the curse of God. See, you are wicked, that's why you're poor. You didn't keep the law, that's why you're poor. And what's that do? That gave them an excuse to what? Not help the poor. The traditions of men said the poor were getting their due in their system. This is wrong, friends. We are all to be kind to those that are less fortunate. We are to help the needy. But again, this doesn't mean give, the, give money to buy drugs and alcohol. If the idols of their hearts are drugs and alcohol, whatever you do, don't just give them money. Maybe do a little bit more. It means take the little bit of time that it takes to take them to a, a, a restaurant and feed them. Maybe take some more time to get to know them, share the gospel with them, give them hope, help them to find a job. Boy, that takes a lot more time, doesn't it, than just to throw a dollar bill out the wall window. Beloved, it takes effort and sacrifice to love the poor and needy. We are talking about helping those who are starving because of illness or other weaknesses. That's what Jesus was referring to. We're talking about women who had begged because they had been abandoned by their husbands who had divorced them because they had burnt the toast. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about those ladies, those widows and orphans that were in need. And what happened with the church when it became, it, it was formed? What was one of the very first things they did? They worked to take care of the widows. Why? Because they were being light in the world. <laughs> this is who we are. However, Jesus was talking primarily about giving grace, not taking revenge in this section. And folks, this starts with just the smallest of words. How do you do when somebody says something unkind to you? How do you do when your spouse does that little, makes that little statement? Boy, I hear this regularly. Well, she really didn't honor me with the way she said that. Okay... What does that mean? Are you looking for honor all the time? Is that the problem? Notice the examples Jesus gives. He says, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. Wow. A slap was a form of what? Showing disrespect and dishonor. A slap across the cheek was a sign that said, you're not worthy of my attention. I'm... You're no good. When Jesus says, turn the other's cheek, he was saying, be willing to be dishonored even more. When somebody dishonors you, be willing to be dishonored even more. Now, at this point, I know there's little lights going off and everybody's immediately, but what about this and what about that, right? Those things come to your mind, don't they? Does that mean that spouse abuse is okay? Is it okay for a man to hit a woman? Never, never, never go to jail is what that person deserves. But there is a very, very important point here. He's getting at the principle of a heart of forgiveness and not being spiteful, taking a loss. Being willing to be looked down upon. Again, this is on the individual level. He's confronting these hearts. And our hearts, right? He's not speaking about how the governing authority should be run. He was saying to his disciples, Don't allow your personal pride to dominate your thinking. That's so important. 
We all need to be much slower to defend and return insults on our opponents. If someone, if someone does something to you that offends you, we should be quick to let it go. Quick to give grace. Quick to let love cover a multitude of sin. Now, confession time. How many of you are quick to let it go? How many of you are quick to give grace? How many of you are quick to let love cover a multitude of sins? When somebody pulls out in front of you, you go, Oh, you must be in a hurry. Come on. I wish we said it that way, right? I wish that's the way we thought. Or one of the kids is playing around and they spill a drink all in your lap. Oh, this is so fun. In a restaurant, no, I can make it to the bathroom and only half the restaurant will see me with wet pants. Oh, we deal with this with our kids, too. He hit me. I know, not, not blood. Don't worry. He, she said this mean thing to me. And then it's a response. And then it's this ongoing battle, right? Oh. How do we avoid doing this and falling into this continual trap of seeking revenge? How? Then he goes on and says, Jesus says, If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. No way. There's no way. I find it so interesting here. That the, the example he uses compared to rich America wouldn't even fit, would it? I mean, think for just a second. This is just a side note that just got my attention. Think for a second. If somebody sues you to take your shirt. <laughs> like, hey, you, I, got, I got 25 of them. You can have all of them. No big deal. Our problem is not with shirts. Our problem is when it really hits our pocketbook. When it really costs us something. When somebody really hurts us. Wait, 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 wait. That's my retirement. Don't touch that. Wait, 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 wait. That's my car. I put a lot of money into this thing. That's when our problems fall. And vengeance and revenge sleep into our heart. If anyone sues you and wants to take your shirt, let them have your coat. Anybody sues you and wants your car, give them both cars. Might fit a little better. Wow, right? Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Well, that's no big deal. Jump in the car. I'll go. I can go ten miles. I can handle it. You want to go to Lakeland? No problem. How about Georgia? How about New York in the car? See, these are the kind of things we need to be thinking. His context was what? The soldiers. Did you know that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, could literally come up to a person and say, Hey, I want you to carry my backpack, all my stuff. I want you to carry it for the next mile or so. So I don't have to carry it, and you can walk back. You know what the citizens of Rome were supposed to do? Drop whatever they were doing and do exactly what the soldier said. Jesus is probably referring to something like this when he says, wait, if they want to go one mile, say, hey, <laughs> soldier, it's okay. You know what? Let's go too. I'll go a little bit further. We don't think this way though, do we? Beloved, we think, I'll give with conditions. I'll love as long as 
it doesn't really cost me that much. (laughs) We don't sacrifice, do we? Anybody else sitting here gone without a meal in the last couple weeks? If you have, please come see me. I want to help you. No, we're healthy. These kind of things don't even make sense to us. We're so self-centered as a people. Totally opposite, right? Give to him who asks you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Oh, we'll borrow. We'll lend money. Let's see, if I lend $10,000 and I get 10% in a year, I'll make 100 bucks. Yeah, I, I can do that. You know what? They could probably get that at a bank. So, And I know their credit's bad, so why don't we make it 20%? That's how our world thinks. He's confronting that and saying, no, that's wrong. It's a wicked heart. We as believers must be above these things. We must be light in the world. We must be those that will go to the end to help people. In fact, we are to be charitable to others. Give without expecting anything in return. Lend to others with an open hand. Every one of us needs to hear this message, don't we? We need to apply this message, don't we? I love how the Lord has used my truck. It has been a great humbling experience for me. There is something about that vehicle. I really like it. I don't love it. It's not an idol, but I do like it. It is a nice truck. And almost every time, watch it not, next week, the Lord will give me a nice humbling, okay, Lord. Every time I turn the key, it works. It's wonderful. The Lord is gracious and kind. But you'd be amazed how people love trucks too. Other people love trucks. And everybody wants to borrow Pastor Mike's truck. Why? Because he's a pastor. He's got to preach or he's got to live what he's preaching. Right? So, so it can be 11 o'clock at night. Hey, Pastor Mike, do you mind if I borrow your truck? When? Now. Couldn't have planned a little bit more. You know, just call me a couple days ago. Sure. By the grace of God, God owns that truck. I don't. And the parsonage has been a great reminder of that too. You know whose home that is? It's God's home. It's not mine. You know, the wild thing is though, beloved, I want you to take this. All of your stuff is God's too. That doesn't just apply to Pastor Mike. That applies to all disciples of Christ. We need to step up, don't we? And be hospitable, loving, kind, sharing. It's important to note Jesus is obviously talking about living in a world that mistreats people. People that will take advantage of you. Will people take advantage of you in our world? Yes. And so what's supposed to be our response? Love them. Like Christ loved us. It's not the kingdom now. I promise you that. We live there in a time when Satan and sin are ruling. We're going to be mistreated while we wait for the kingdom to come. We need to evaluate our hearts and make sure we're responding to our Savior properly. Now, as soon as I say this, I know there's some of us in the room that are thinking of scenarios that allow for self-defense and revenge and not giving and not being kind. But again, 
Can you get the principle? Can you get the principle? Don't get buried and lost in the whole, oh, well, what about this? And what about this scenario? How about check our hearts, right? And is there pride in it? And is there a propensity to be selfish? All of us. How many times have we heard the the defense? Well, he called me a name. Well, he laughed at me. Well, he mistreated me. What is that? What is that? That is pride and that is self-justification. Okay, listen closely. What is the difference between repentance and works righteousness? Repentance does this. It owns the sin and turns to God and says, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. May I now live for you and honor you. That's repentance. Whereas self-righteousness is this. But I did it because they did something bad to me. That is sin on top of sin. Well, that person said a bad name to me. Well, they treated me bad, so I just treated them back bad. Isn't that fair? (laughs) What is that? Justification of sin. Do you understand, beloved? That we, can you imagine? We're all going to stand before the Lord one day. And do you think that the Lord is going to say, okay, give me all the reasons why you were mean? No. He's going to look deep down in your soul and he's going to say, you're guilty. You're guilty. Every time you said an unkind word or a revengeful took vengeance on yourself, out of pride, we will stand condemned. Yes, the world's going to mistreat us. But Jesus' disciples are called to a higher standard. We are called to not return revile for revile. We are told to give a blessing instead of a curse. We are told to go the extra mile in sacrificing for another. This is righteousness. We are called to live out this righteousness by the grace of God and the Spirit of God that's living in us. This is light in a dark world, isn't it? Can you imagine a church that did this all the time? Do you think it would be different than the rest of the community? It would stand out. You know, Paul does the same thing, and I want you to turn in your Bible, and we'll close with this. After clearly laying out the gospel in Romans 1 to 11, Paul then exhorts the Christian to live in light of the gospel that you know. In light of what Christ has done for you, live it out. And he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Boy, that's exclusive, isn't it? Never means what? Never. Anyone means anyone, right? Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You say, Mike, you've already said this verse three weeks ago. So how did we do living it for the last three weeks? Right? Well, I did good. I just didn't get around people. (laughs) 
I just held up in a room and put some earbuds in and hid from everybody. And I didn't say a word bad to anybody. <laughs> Look at me. Friends, that's us, isn't it? That's us. To avoid meeting and being around people just so that you won't do these things is to clean up the outside of the cup. Ooh, did you hear that? Pursue people. Love them like Christ loved us. You know, it's all founded on what? And why should we do it? Look at Romans 5.10. Last verse. It's all founded on this truth. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. While we were enemies? Oh, friends, do you understand? Do you understand? That if we got what we deserved in a just world, all of us would be in hell right now. But God did something. God did something amazing. He sent His own Son to take the judgment we deserve. And in light of that, there is nothing that any of you can do to me that's going to break me to the place of despair. Why? Because Christ loved me despite me. Aren't you glad the system is not set up that we get back everything that we deserve. Can you imagine, friends, there would be no salvation for anyone because we'd all be under the judgment of God forever. Because a holy God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And everyone in the room has done so much sin against the holy God that if you got what you deserved, we'd all be eternally separated from God. But God sent His Son into the world to die for sinners like me and you. And that truth alone should silence us all when we're mistreated. Do you understand? That truth alone is our driving force. May God be glorified in all that we say and do this week. If you don't know that love and you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and know the love of forgiveness that's found in Him... Do it today. Don't wait. For us that believe, we need to preach the gospel a lot more to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you that though we are sinful and we are the reason that he died, thank you that despite that, we have hope because of him. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your kindness towards us. Thank you that he's alive and that we are now alive in him, all who believe. Father, I pray that if there's any in here that don't know that forgiveness that's found in Christ, that love of an abiding relationship with you, I pray, God, that you will open eyes, open hearts, open the the eyes of their heart, that they may know the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Oh God, please save. And for us that are being sanctified by you, please, Lord, remind us 
of your grace. Remind us of your love towards us. Remind us of how many times you have forgiven us. May we be people of grace, people of love, people of charity. May we be people, lights in this world for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.